All right, you all go to withoutyourhead.com. I'll come over there and put my boot up in your ass. I'm Nasty Neal, and I'm joined, I believe it's his third time here, Bill Oberus Jr. It's uh, great to have you back. Neil, I'm glad to be on the non-literal, figurative station for decapitation. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, now, we're talking about... In, in today's world, you have to be specific. That, that's Well, that's very true. Uh, we're talking a little bit off air about I lost power, and, uh, and uh, like, what do you do without power? And briefly talked about, you know, reading a book, obviously, and uh, board games. And I grew up playing board games and role-playing games. So I do want to know, what are your favorite board games? It's interesting you ask. When I was a kid, I loved Hi-Oh Cheerio, which is probably like the nerdiest game. Uh Um, I I also loved Monopoly. And Battleship, I think, was my very, very favorite. Because when I grew up, they had the commercial that said, You suck my Battleship! So the opportunity to say that was great. The power went off. The power went off in Los Angeles uh, about three years ago near Halloween, (laughs) and I lit a candle. And I I lit a candle, and I read from Washington Irving's sketchbook. I read the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, Hmm. and uh, it was great because I did. I was just passing the time, but it really gave me the chills. It kind of scared me, and I thought, "Wow, this is really cool that a story from that long ago can still." provoke that kind of reaction yeah that is interesting because so many things have come since then but uh what do you think that is about the story that uh, still uh still gets that reaction out of people it's the atmosphere and even it's the fear you feel what ichabod feels and ichabod is so superstitious and on the one hand you laugh at him for being superstitious but on the other hand you know we're all kind of superstitious and when he's riding at night down toward the cemetery, yeah, it's, it's even though you know probably that there really is no Headless Horseman, it's pretty scary. It's like late at night, because I've done so much theater in my life. I've done, I've done a lot of driving late at night, and I used to listen to Coast to Coast with Art Bell. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace. And when you listen to Art Bell, you know, at like 2 a.m., and people calling in and saying, yeah, this spirit came in and was in my bedroom, and you're on a dark, lonely road, it's pretty creepy. <laughs> Uh-huh. The shadow people, yeah. Uh, I used to listen to a lot they of are the, the black, the black-eyed kids. Those oh, are the yeah. worst. When I heard people calling in saying they were at my door and they wanted to come in, and I was like, "Oh, don't do this to me! I'm in the middle of the country <laughs> here. Don't do this." Uh-huh. Uh, the time is actually uh, back to, to your stuff because you're talking about a kabat crane, which actually I think I can actually see you playing a kabat crane. I don't know if that might I would be love, that's I would love, I love Blake about yeah. Green. I, I can definitely do you doing a, a good job with that. Now, um, last hey, time I'll we had, you, who, 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, go ahead. No, no. Uh, you were going to say who would be an, an excellent Ichabod, I think. I, well, the best Ichabod crane that I ever saw was the dog Wishbone uh, in the old PBS kids series Wishbone. And he was, uh, did you ever see Wishbone? No, no, I haven't. Uh, okay, he was, he, he's a Jack Russell Terrier, and um, he loves books. And so he always, like, knocks a book down from the shelf and opens it up with his paw. And he's inside the book. And so he plays these characters, but he's dressed like a human. And humans interact with them. So he played Ichabod and Crane in The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> he was so scared. Whatever anything would happen, like he'd just be, you know, reading the the uh, Cotton Mather's History of New England witchcraft, and somebody would come up behind him and touch him on the shoulder, and he go, "Ah, <laughs> <laughs> It was great. He was the best canine Ichabod Crane I ever saw. Sorry, that was an aside. No, that's very cool. I would. Uh, there's always <laughs> there's always so many different versions that it's always fun to. Uh, to check, it's kind of like a, a Christmas Carol. It's always good to check out all the different versions. Totally. So, well, last time we had you on, uh, you were talking about the uh, Ray Bradbury uh, project you were working on, and uh, at the time you weren't sure, like, if it was something you were going to go through with or not. And uh, my brother, who's on the show, he can't be on today. Uh, Troy and I were really, we thought it was great, and it's very cool to see that it's uh, progressed a lot uh, since the last time we talked to you. Yeah, um, thank you, man. Um, Ray's family was really kind, and they said, yeah, develop it, and we want to approve the script. So then I got with the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies in Indiana, which has his entire office and all of his papers and everything, and I worked with them on developing the script. Ray's daughters approved it, the estate approved it, and so, yeah, now we're going to take it off-Broadway. And I just did the very first reading of it uh, in an off-Broadway theater in April. And the reception was really good, and um, Ray's literary agent was there and said, we really like this. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be careful as I go along with each step, you know, because Ray's really important to me and to be sure to honor his legacy and keep him up front. But it's a dream to play him. And again, you know, the power of words, like standing in that dark theater, uh, speaking his words, the, the key to Bradbury is the language. It's the description, it's the words, it's not so much the plot, it's the way that he says things. But to hear people afterwards came up, and particularly, you know, some younger people who didn't really know his work well, and they said, this language absolutely transfixed us. I thought, yes, that's the reaction that I had to when I was 12 and 14 discovering him. So um, it's great. We, I'm looking forward to bringing it off Broadway, and I hope, I hope it goes well. That's interesting that um, you said some people who weren't familiar with his work uh, really liked it, because yeah. I would think going yeah. in, that might be something you think about, like, uh, you know, does everyone know Bradbury today? And if no. they're not, can, can they, you know, get into it? And it Cause and It's kind of like horror, you know, like you and I know, um, I can mention things to you in horror and actors in horror, Tony mm -hmm. Todd, but mostly whatnot. And you're like, oh, yeah, sure. I know what that is. I know who it is. But people outside of the genre have no idea. And um, people outside the genre generally don't know who I am. And it's that way in um, literary, too. People who, who who aren't into science fiction and fantasy don't know who some of my favorite authors are. It's very much a niche world. Yeah. So uh, when I was reading the review, which was an excellent review, um, uh, there was a quote, uh, which I guess was from Bradbury. I don't predict the future. I try to prevent it. And I thought, well, that's an yeah. awesome quote. And it's... Uh, Kind of like going back to, to reading uh, Ichabod Crane and the Legend of Sleepy Hollow, how it's still 
holds up. And I thought, well, that's a really topical quote. And then I thought, well, it probably always was a topical quote wherever you are. And it probably always will be a topical quote uh, in the future. You know it's, I mean? even, it's even more topical, Neil, because here's where it comes in the show. Um, I, I open with a little piece he wrote called The Murderer about him. He wrote this in 53. That's about a time when we had smart speakers and talking houses and phones with us everywhere. And this man just murders his phone because he can't stand being in touch. And he loves it so much he murders his entire house. And so the state has him in a mental hospital. And then we go from that into uh, A Sound of Thunder, where the guy goes back in time, steps on the butterfly, messes with the timeline, and suddenly we've elected the most unqualified person ever to be president of the United States. And at the end of the story, the guy, you know, he's holding the butterfly, and he's like, can't we go back? Can't we change it? Can't we change it? Can't we make it not happen? And boom, the story's over, and that's when Ray says, I don't predict the future. I try to prevent it. And it got the biggest applause at the reading because it was as if it was written this year. It's yeah, really cool. That's that's like yearly uh, uh, accurate. Well, you know, uh, topical. That, that's wild. Because I <laughs> even I even read more into that. It said uh, I believe it even in the story it was uh, the president doesn't doesn't read, which was uh, it's a really weird. Uh, yeah, you know, uh, for today it was. So did you when you were putting this together? Uh, since there's is so many stories, uh, how how like hard was it to narrow it down to certain ones you wanted to talk about? Impossibly hard. So I asked John Eller, who's written, he's a professor, he's the head of the Bradbury Center um, at IUPUI. He's written three biographies of Ray. And I just asked him, I said, John, here's what I think, here's the ones I like, what do you think? And he helped me narrow them down because I couldn't have done it by myself. I'd be like, oh, a little of this one, a little of this one. Like uh-huh. it would be like having a dessert tray. I would just have everything, just a little bit of everything. Yeah, and it would be a mess. <laughs> so he helped me narrow it down. But but I had to put in something wicked. This way comes this scene in the library where Mister Dark comes in and he's looking for the boys climbing up the library shelf. That is terrifying to me, and we got that in there. Yeah. So how how, how much is uh how much has this changed since you started? You know, thinking about doing it. Completely different. That's the cool thing about developing a project. Um, it's very different than when I started. Originally, I, his wife was a big influence on him, and I thought, well, I'll just have his wife as like this, um, you know, he talks to her, but she's not there. And then that evolved into, well, I want her voice. So I have her voice, and he's dancing with her, but it's just a light. And then when we did the actual reading, the director up there, Michael Ormond, said, I know the perfect actress to play Maggie Bradbury, Zoe Watkins. She even looks like her. And the audience loves so much the sight of Ray dancing with his wife, Maggie, that now I have to put it in the show, so now it's a two-character show. <laughs> and I just talked to a press agent yesterday who said, people really love Maggie. You need to write more Raggy and increase her role in there. Uh-huh. So, yeah, it, uh, it keeps changing, and it's great. It's, it's great that my original ideas were not right. It's not good to be right all the time. It makes you kind of stagnate, you know. Now, when you mentioned <clears throat> being approved by the Bradbury State, um, <clears throat> how, what, how long of a process was that? And is it something, uh, cause, uh, it's not something that they do for everyone, I guess. Not like everyone wants to do some Brad bear and they just like, yeah, go on with it. Well, any, anyone who wants to perform any author should, many mm-hmm. people don't, but they should go and seek the right to do that. I know actors who don't, I think it's really wrong. It's stealing work. 
Um, but it was about a year-long process from the time they said, yes, develop the show, to yes, we approved the final script. I went through 16 different drafts. and um, Because, you, you know, you've got two things going on. You're asking to use sections of people's work. And that's pretty technical. Like I want to use so many words from this story and so many words from this story. And then they have to see, do we have licenses out for other people to perform this story and so forth. But also you're dealing with someone's family member, friend, father, uh, and you want to present them as the family would want them presented while at the same time making them interesting to the audience. Um, and so it's a balance, you know, it's a balance. It's like remembering, you know how, like when somebody passes and we talk about them, we tell the most interesting stories about them. It's just kind of like that. You want it recognizable to the people who knew and loved him, but the parts of him that are really, really interesting or, or, or uh, put up front. Mm-hmm. Now, I just actually saw the first trailer for uh, Fahrenheit 451 coming to HBO. I think it was uh, during the Westworld premiere, right before it. Uh, are you looking forward to it? Yeah. What did you think of the trailer? I thought it looked uh, looked very good. It was uh, I remember the um, uh, Michael Shannon's in it. Who uh, even if even if the movie is a good, I always find him a uh, really interesting uh, actor. So I think just him being involved, I was interested. I'm interested in it too because they're taking the idea of Bradbury's story and they're working with the metaphor. Bradbury's really big on metaphors. He was he always said the uh, the point of a story or a novel is not the plot at all. It's what he called the asides. Like the plot is just an excuse for the actors then to talk and uh, philosophize about the central metaphor of the story. And so I know they've got that metaphor there. So the plot, it's not as important that they follow the exact plot. It's the metaphor. Like The Walking Dead, you know? I mean, there are people who say, oh, it's not like the comics. But it's the metaphor, right? they got the metaphor, and then you just riff on that. It's like a jazz riff. Yeah, there's... Um... I was uh, just about the Walking Dead. I always find it weird that people are uh, are always saying that it's you know there's not enough zombies. It's uh, it's uh, more about the people. But like if you watch mm-hmm. any of the Romero zombie movies, and I know it's not Romero, but it is heavily based on or inspired by Romero uh, uh, stuff. They're all about the people. The zombies. I mean, they're obviously in there, but it's really about the interaction between the people. It's about facing death, right? I mean, that's what this whole genre is about: is facing death. Yeah. Uh, actually, did you watch uh, The Walking Dead? Yeah, yeah, I've watched it since the beginning. Mm-hmm. Do you like it? I do. Yeah, I do like it. Um, I, the more that they go into, I really like. I like, of course, you know, the huge zombie scene it can never be outdone with the tank in the middle of Atlanta. But I like it when they get into the people's. Um, I like that scene. People's reactions to the fact that there's no way to avoid this; that it's going to happen. It's again, it's. It's a metaphor for death. Which there's no way to avoid it. It's going to happen. It's a question of how we deal with it. And, and I'll tell you, Neil, you know, people knock horror still, even though it's making a lot of money for Hollywood now. People still knock it. Yeah, yeah. But I find, that, uh, I find that horror fans are more thoughtful, mm-hmm. um, seemingly more intelligent, and more comfortable with facing death than uh, other people who knock it. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. By the way, uh, Ray Bradbury Live Forever, uh, which I'm actually asked that question about the title. Uh, that's where you can get all the information. Is it Ray Bradbury Live Forever or is it Ray Bradbury Live Forever? It's both, and I'm glad you caught that. 
it's Ray Bradbury live in the sense that, you know, it's a show and it's Ray himself on stage, which his uh, literary agent for years urged him to go out and do this sort of Charles Dickens thing where he'd read from his works. He never did it. And that's what this is. But he, he very famously would say that when he was a kid, um, carnival um, man in a freak show named Mr. Electrico, who would get touched with a sword and uh, the electricity would run through him through his sword. He touched Ray on the forehead and said, live forever. So it's, it's both live forever, live, Ray Bradbury live forever and Ray Bradbury live forever. And in both cases, it's ironic because nobody does live forever. Mm-hmm. Lives forever through his work. So, uh, at Granny's house is on video and demand. And, uh, so was, uh, that was fun to watch you cause you're in uh, a little different th- than you are. I think in some other movies, more of like a, a straight character. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I get to play a noir detective in a granny's house, and I liked it because I've always wanted to play a sort of really hard-boiled dragnet, uh, Bogart, kind of a cop. Um, I don't say much in it, and I asked to have some of the lines that I did have cut, which Les Mahoney, the writer and director, was very kind to oblige me, because I really like nonverbal acting. And there's a scene I got to do with Rachel Alec, the star of the film, where we go down to the basement to look for her room, and um, we just kept cutting lines to where eventually it was nothing but like a raised eyebrow <laughs> and a look. And she would, you know, say with her eyes, go ahead. And it was great just to see how little you could pare it down to. I don't like a bunch of dialogue for uh, my characters. Mm-hmm. I, I really like the delivery of your of your character. And, and as you mentioned, it all, all the looks and stuff. Uh, it, I didn't think of like a noir uh, a cop. It's that, yeah, that's totally what it is now that I think about it. Yeah, people. Uh, I I like uh, I like characters who don't talk so much if they're going to be a little bit mysterious because then when they do say something, you know, you listen. Yeah. What I like too is uh, when when you talk about the the basement scene, it's like a fight scene, but it's a fight scene between like uh, yours, not necessarily the other two are normal like normal people. It's not like trained fighters, and uh, I, I like that because it seemed like more just like something that would happen as opposed to you know. These are, you know, trained martial artists. Yeah, I know just what you mean. It's, it's like rolling around with your brother or your cousin, yeah. <laughs> you know, grabbing their leg or they punch your neck or that, yeah, that kind of stuff. And that's much more suited to me physically because whenever I've been in a fight scene with anybody who was choreographed, every time, Neil, every uh-huh. time somebody gets hurt. Uh-huh. I got a scar under my left eye from missing a cue during this choreographed martial arts fight which I never should have been in, but I missed the cue during rehearsal and it split my cheek open. I gave a guy a black eye. I so remember I was supposed to like punch on the left and he turned to the right, punch to the left. He turned to the right, right? I'm over him and he's on a mattress and I'm punching his face. Mm -hmm. And each time I punch, he's supposed to just miss my fist. And he said, Bill's going to hit me. Bill's going to hit me. And the director's like, Bill's not going to hit you. Well, guess what? (laughs) I hit him. And he was like, I knew it. I knew Bill was going to hit me. I was like, guys, don't ask me to do this stuff. <laughs> yeah, so, it, 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 so no injuries this time? No, no injuries right. this time. And I got a pin I got a pin shoved into my gut, and I got to pull it out and say what I thought was a pretty great line. Um, you should have used a knife. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, Les Mahoney's, uh, right now the writer-director, is also uh, in the movie. What's that like to, to act with someone who's also directing the movie? 
<laughs> you just do what they say on both counts. You know, Russ is a great actor and um, and a filmmaker. And when you're working with somebody like I just did Rob Zombie's Three from Hell. Mm-hmm. Rob wasn't in the movie, but Rob wrote the movie and he's directing the movie. And Les did both in this case. So you kind of pick the times you want to talk to them because their head is in a lot of different places. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of Three from Hell, I don't know. Uh, you probably can't talk too much about it. but uh, Or maybe you can. I don't know. But uh, how did you get involved? Oh, I, in I, I can tell you that there's a lot of carnage in it, which you might right. guess. In any case, but it reminded me of Trump's uh, inauguration speech. It's the only time I would say that reminds me of a Trump speech. <laughs> <laughs> in this case, his phrase "American carnage." He was not talking about our actual country, but he was he was talking about the world of Rob Zombie's Three from Hell. Mm-hmm. It, um, it ups the ante. I think fans will like it. Yeah. Had you ever worked with Rob before? I had not. I, and I was flattered that he knew who I was. My agent called and said, Rob Zombie wants you to do a part in his film. We don't know what the part is yet. And I said, say yes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and interesting. Yeah. Interesting enough. Sid Haig was the first ever guest on with I in 2006. Our first, well, our first <laughs> show, our first show, we just talked about horror movies, but the first guest on the show. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. Which uh, he was a great guest. Honestly, it was a little uh, nerve wracking because, like, our first guest is Sid is Sid Haig. But I remember, call, I remember always, I always remember the show. I called him up, and he was watching House on TV, and I was just like, "Oh, he's just you know a normal guy, like all of us." So, but uh, he said that uh, he would never, there would never be another one because they all died at the end. And so, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you need to get Sid back on now and say, "Sid, what happened?" Uh-huh. Exactly. Well, you know, it's movie magic. Spock died, but guess what? Right, right. You know? But the interesting thing is figuring out, how are they going to do that? Exactly. I think fans will be pleased. Yeah, Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. The um, Also, I think it's interesting is people always refer to it as a sequel to Devil's Rejects, uh, not like the second sequel to uh, House of a Thousand Corpses. And I think it's because both movies are so different, but it's... uh, I think that's the only time I really remember. Like, no one says this is a sequel to, like, you know, Halloween 3 or something. They was, it's a sequel to Halloween. But they specifically say, like, this is a sequel to the second movie. That's interesting, Neil. I haven't thought of that. And I've never, in the publicity part, I've never heard anybody say, this is the second sequel to House of a Thousand Corpses. Never once. Yeah, you're right. They're, they're so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was Rob Zombie himself like? <laughs> it was great. It's like inspired insanity. He's an actor's director. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's got a crew that's been with him before, and they move like clockwork, so he has room to play. Uh, so, you know, I was in a scene with Richard Brake, who's terrific from Game of Thrones, and um, yeah. he went up to Richard and whispered something in his ear and told him to do something that wasn't in the script, and Richard did it, and I had to, like, go with it in the take, and then Rob afterwards is like, sorry, I didn't tell you that, but I just wanted to see what would happen. <laughs> that kind of stuff. Um, you only get that stuff from an actor's director. And I was also, he's, he's so much an actor's director that he tells you what he likes about your prior performances. Um, he said to me, what I like about what you do is where you get really quiet at the same time that you're really menacing. So that's what I want you to do. And if I don't like it, I'll tell you, but I want you to do your thing first. And again, that's an actor's director. Because nothing pumps an actor up like a director saying, hey, I've seen you do something that I like, you know, because we're all needy bitches anyway. All right. Uh, actually, it's uh, I always think uh, Richard Brake, who was great in uh, in Thirty One, and Anthony's in, and Bill Mosley and yourself all uh, actually give me the same kind of vibe as an actor. The three of you. So it'd be cool to see you. Thank all. Thank you. Um, 
Bill is such a nice guy, such a nice and gentle guy in life. Um, I worked with his wife, who's an actress, who was on set. Um, terrific, terrific people. You know, everybody in this genre, you know, it's like that plays these bastards. They're all really nice. I wonder if there's some connection there. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I wonder if any of the people who play real nice guys are, are just real a holes. Like you don't want to be around. Um, makeup <laughs> artists tell makeup artists tell me this all the time. When you sit down in a makeup artist chair who works in this genre, she'll go, oh, a creepy guy. I can tell you're going to be sweet. <laughs> and then she'll start telling me about the other creepy guys she worked with who was sweet. And then invariably, if I don't say anything, they'll keep talking and they'll say, well, you know, I had so-and-so, so-and-so, who's a beautiful person. And they were so awful and rude. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, I, guess, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. yeah. I don't know why that is. Yeah. I don't know either. We'll have to look into it. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, for for um, Ray Brad- Bradbury, it's RayBradburyLiveForever.com. Uh, so you guys go there, and there's all kind. Of, it's a really cool website. You check it all the. I'm looking forward to it. I know it's way too early, but it did say that there you'll have a, a nationwide uh, tour, hopefully. So uh, hopefully it comes to Boston. So uh, it'll be close for me. Definitely, we will definitely do Boston. I can't wait to tour with this. The plan is to do it in New York, not lose our shirt. And be short and get a couple of good reviews and then we can take it out and tour it. There's some magic, you know, just like in LA, uh, there's magic if a film has had a premiere in LA, quote unquote. It's the same thing with theater. Um, if you don't run it in New York, it's not considered really legitimate theater. But if you got a good New York review, then you could be like, you know, straight from New York and you take it out on the road. Yeah. Well, very cool. I'm glad you went forward with that because uh, it's uh, like you, you said in email, it was, it's your baby. And uh, it sounds very interesting to me, and it's cool to see it uh, come come to fruition. Well, the cool thing that I found in my little career is, you know, I used to be afraid of doing stuff because I would think, well, you know, that's a big established thing. You know, for uh, Disney World, for instance, I'm a Disney freak. (laughs) That's Disney World. I could never do anything like that. And then you read the story of Walt Disney, how he went bankrupt, and how all of these uh, wonderful things that are now, they seem to have been here forever. They were all just people's ideas at one time. Everything that's established started by somebody saying, I got an idea. And why not me? Oh, you can't do it. Why not? Why not me? Why, why, why can't I do it? Um, I don't know. Maybe somebody else can do it better than me, but they're not doing it. So why don't I try it? That's the spirit of entrepreneurship. And that's how everything gets created. But it's really liberating to realize that no matter how solid something looks, it, at one time, it was just a guy or a girl who said, I got an idea. I have a neighbor who thinks it's cool to start his motorcycle up very loudly. <laughs> yeah, I got a neighbor who does that when I'm doing audiobooks. Uh-huh. There's an apartment complex back behind my house. And if I'm, I'm right in the middle of an audible audiobook, and I'm like, you know, Cheney came into the room and he's like out there cranking up his Trans Am like I'm like dude please (laughs) very cool so uh, I I, one more question before I let you go is uh, how do you find time to do all these movies do your uh, your uh, your project here uh, Ray Bradbury and and even come and talk to me for every few months how how do you find time to do all this stuff what else am I going to (laughs) do you know I'm not I'm not a party guy. I'm in bed at 9.30 if I'm not working. I get up at 5.30. I got to do something with my days. I hate to waste time. 
and I'm German enough to want to keep producing things. I figure like at the end of the day, if I can't look back and say, what did you do today that moved you towards being the person you want to be? If you haven't done one thing that moved you towards that, it's a really horrible feeling. I've wasted an entire day. I can't stand it. Mm-hmm. I think that's good advice for everybody, no matter what it is. But, and, but, you know, being the person you want to be might just be like doing good for your family or cooking sure. dinner for your spouse or washing the dog. It didn't have to be creating, you know, a script or something. Mm-hmm. But wh- who do I want to be today? How do I want to show uh, my appreciation for being alive? And have I actually done that at the end of the day or did I just sort of, you know, waste time? Mm-hmm. Uh, two years ago. I might not this- have another day. Very true. Two years ago this month. Um, I was very sick and I was in the hospital. It was uh, many near-death experiences throughout those many months. I was in hospital rehab, back in the hospital. And uh, afterwards, I had the same, uh, and I still try to remember that because, uh, and I always tell people to do what, you know, what you love to do and be around people that you love to be around with. And it doesn't have to be even something, you know, spectacular. You might just like to, to watch, TV, watch TV or I don't know, whatever it is you like to do. But while you're here, because yeah. you don't know when you won't be able to do it anymore, uh, you should try to do it, whatever it is that you enjoy doing. That's really good advice, Neil, especially coming from you. I haven't had that experience, but that must have been something being where you didn't know if you were going to be around or not. Mm-hmm. It was, uh, yeah, I, I'm sure people listen have heard me say this whole story before, but it was a, it was a long experience and. Uh, and it's weird because this month, like on Time Hop and things on your Facebook, uh, so all these pictures will pop up throughout the month, like, you know, two years ago today, and it'll be all the all the stuff that was going on at the time. So it's, uh, I always remember it anyway, but uh, then it really pops up into your memory. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad that you're with us. Thank you. I am too. I'm too. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it's always uh, great to have you on, Bill, and uh, we'll definitely do it again sometime. Thank you, Neil. I really appreciate it, man. God bless you. Thank you. And honestly, whenever I see you in something, it, it, I always know uh, uh, that you that'll be interesting. Oh, I appreciate you saying that, man. Thank you. It means a lot. You're very welcome. All right. Thanks, man. Okay. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, this is Bill Mosley, Otis Driftwood, and Shop Tap Sawyer, and you're listening to Without Your Head.